it's really nice to have the chance to, to talk to a very different group of people from the people I normally present to. Um, and I'm also very pleased to see that there is this whole theme seminar this term on qualitative approaches to eating disorders. I think this is the kind of uh, exciting interdisciplinary stuff that we probably need more of. Uh, at least that's my biased opinion, but I'll try and back it up in the, in the talk that follows. Um, I guess already this is a slight um, lie on the first slide and in the introduction because I formally finished this Knowledge Exchange Fellowship last week, um, so I'm now just in the process of applying for more funding to carry on this project. Um, but, well, I think it's a good project and I hope I'm going to find some money soon. Um, so I guess I don't need to really tell you that interdisciplinary research brings with it a lot of problems or more diplomatically challenges. Um, from very pragmatic kind of practical ones like, you know, are we used to working in groups or individually to right through to more fundamental kind of conceptual issues like how we conceive of evidence, what we think of as truth, these big questions that it can really be quite tricky to, to come to any common ground with regard to. Um, but I think, for me anyway, it's become increasingly clear that the payoffs really make those make tackling those problems worth it. Um, so for me particular kinds of benefits have been um, just in getting a kind of fresh set of eyes from a very different field to to come to questions to methodologies that you know in, within a given field you can start taking for granted and just throw some new light on them, challenge them um, with, with new perspectives. Um, and the other, the other key benefit which I think is particularly relevant to, to thinking about disordered eating is that so many of the question, the research questions we tackle these days are inherently multi-dimensional. They, they include a whole lot of factors which it seems fairly obvious in many cases can't be tackled from just one dis disciplinary perspective alone. Um, so I think this for me is, is just clearly the case um, with eating disorders and, and not just the case that we need, I mean already within um, kind of psychiatric and um, more generally scientific research, we're seeing a lot of interdisciplinary collaboration. But I think also um, thinking about ways that we might extend the interdisciplinary network to include the humanities is, is quite important here. I'll, um, I'll try and flesh out this argument in, in what follows. Um, I think one of, the, one of the other important things to bear in mind when we're thinking about setting up interdisciplinary projects is this issue of um, actual real reciprocity when it comes to the two areas. And this isn't really something that I'm going to be talking about much today, but I think it's really important, especially <coughs> when you've got multiple people on board, that they all kind of see that there are benefits for them and their home discipline, if you like. Um, so although what I'll be talking about today is mainly how can we understand eating disorders better, there are, and I'll, I'll give some hints of, of ways in which this may be the case, but there are, there are clear ways for me in which literary studies is also benefiting from this, this kind of work. Um, so, to expand on this idea of, of why we need multiple approaches, um, it seems to me that eating disorders are probably the prime example of a condition that straddles the domains of physical and mental health. Obviously, they're normally talked about in terms of mental illnesses, but um, I guess you guys here will know better than anyone that the, the physiological components uh, of eating disorders are very profound. Um, and this kind of insight has been uh, crucial to the development of cognitive behavioural approaches to treating eating disorders. This is a, a diagram from Fairburn's manual on cognitive behavioural therapy and eating disorders, 
which um, this is a, a very kind of simplified feedback loop um, indicating some of the components that, uh, that together constitute the psychopathology of uh, a restrictive eating disorder. Um, so there are two key points to take from this, this diagram. The first one is that um, it's possible to say with quite some confidence that a particular physiological state, like significantly low weight, will have predictable effects on various aspects of cognition. Here the examples given are preoccupation with food and eating, um, things to do with social withdrawal and obsessive thinking. Um, and the second key thing uh, to bear in mind then is that um, you can enter this loop at any point. There's no one privileged uh, component. So the mental isn't privileged over physical, nor vice versa. So you could end up, you know, you could get a horrible virus that took away your appetite and prevented you eating, which could um, make your weight drop, which would then have all, uh, at least some of those cognitive effects which would feed back into uh, the other parts of the cycle. Um, so the cycle can very easily be uh, initiated um, by some chance event and um, then can come, become self-sustaining in, uh, in this very systematic way. Um, so this, on, in this diagram, the feedback is um, uh, fundamentally unstable. He's already, Thurman has, has weighted these, um, these processes, these components, as in, in negative terms, over-evaluation, strict dieting, low weight. Um, and so in this feedback loop, there's no chance of, of kind of breaking out of it into a more stable um, kind of feedback. Um, but we can kind of rejig re this in a more neutral sense um, to think about the interacting components as having the potential for both stability, that is ultimately resulting in, in health and um, a stable physical and mental state, or in instability, depending on um, the valences of the different components. Um, so one might talk about the, the interactions between emotion, between emotion and thought and physical sensation and, and behaviours uh, and basic physiological states like, um, like body weight. Um, so once we, if we accept the profound interconnection um, of all of those elements, then of course we have to start thinking more closely about the prompts, the stimuli, the, um, the sources of content for some of those different components. Um, and, and in some cases, like thought patterns or emotional states in particular, but also some of the more behavioural ones, like, like diet and exercise, um, of course, cultural inputs become crucial. So I've just given some possible examples from the realm of reading, um, but you could think of millions of other examples. So you might um, uh, read a fictional text and engage emotionally with a fict fictional characters in a particular way, which would change your emotional state, which would start feeding down to the other components. Similarly, you might engage with characters' thought processes or read about a certain evocation of a type of physical ideal or read about um, particular dietary um, strategies in a fictional text or indeed a non-fictional text. Um, there, are, there are lots more complicated kinds of interactions that you can envisage here, but um, clearly at every point except the direct influence on body weight, um, there's the potential for, for direct cultural input. <coughs> Now that's kind of treating the cultural stuff as arbitrary inputs that can affect one stage of the process, but we can also think of it in a more um, fully integrated and embedded fashion um, with, the, uh, with the cultural components not only having effects, but also being caused by particular uh, aspects of the um, embodied 
cognitive state. So being in a particularly um, depressed mood, for example, might lead you to seek out particular kinds of fiction to engage with, which would in turn have, um, have effects on thoughts or um, bodily sensations or whatever. Um, so I think the, uh, the potential for cultural phenomena to have significant effects on this kind of pathological or healthy feedback loop uh, is, is quite profound. And I'll go on to explore to explain um, uh, a bit more about the current project and where, where these data come from in a minute, but um, this is something that in a survey that I've been running becomes very clear from quite a few participants' responses. They're identifying explicitly this kind of um, feedback loop uh, developing in their own behaviours and moods. Um, so this first person um, talks about how when reading, my mood can improve or worsen depending on my starting frame of mind. If I'm hopeful, they, the books, can motivate and increase willpower and self-esteem. If I'm in a bad place, I come away feeling worse and more likely to engage in eating disorders behaviour. So positive or negative feedback loop, like depending on the starting point. Um, and similarly, so the, uh, the starting point there would be an emotional state and that would lead to certain kind of engagement with fiction. Um, and in the second example, um, a similar kind of um, process is described. When I'm feeling anti-recovery, feeling fit or trying to lose weight, I tend to search for the kind of books that will trigger me. I feel for me the pathway would have to be something like weight gain leads to relapse, leads to seeking triggering books, magazines or documentaries out, leads to change in behaviour. For me the starting point is most definitely that ED voice in my head, not the books. So ED voice in the head, some kind of um, structure of thought, uh, leads to seeking out particular books that this person knows is going to, are going to be triggering for her, uh, and then going through the, the very predictable loop um, in which a mental state is a starting point, but the, the fictional um, engagement is, is a key component. <coughs> so there hasn't really been a whole lot of research on this yet. Um, there has been quite a lot of stuff on pictorial uh, stimuli, so in the mass media, uh, representations of, um, of idealised female bodies, for example, in TV advertisements and so on, um, and a bit of stuff on, on um, text in, in those online media, uh, but less on, um, on fiction reading, on sort of personal reading of, of the non-mass media. Um, again, just a few indications from the survey, and I promise I'll come back and explain more about the, the setup of the survey in a minute. Um, but just to give you an indication of like the significance of reading in, in this population, um, uh, which was primarily a, an eating disorder population. Um, so this is how much, uh, how much time per week is spent on reading. Uh, this includes fiction and non-fiction. Um, so for just under 50% spend between one and five hours but 10% are spending more than 10 hours. So this is a sort of significant part of uh, people's normal week. 10% um, are members of a book club or other kind of discussion group for um, stuff that people have read. Uh, nearly 40% have looked for fiction or non-fiction to help someone else tackle their eating disorder. And of those, 26% found both fiction and non-fiction to recommend. 77% um, have looked for fiction or non-fiction to help with their own eating disorder. Um, 50% have had books recommended to them for that purpose and tried reading them. And just under half have found books helpful in tackling their eating disorder, whereas nearly 60% um, have found books ha harmful. And I'll come back to, to breaking down those, those data a bit more uh, later on. So reading is clearly like 
I think, um, I mean, there are all, all sorts of other sources of data for this kind of thing, but um, it seems to me that if we're thinking about the, the potential relevance of, of reading in this kind of context, it's, it's clearly there. Um, now, this, the potential usefulness of uh, books in general has certainly been explored quite a lot in all sorts of areas of mental health, including eating disorders. Um, bibliotherapy is one kind of um, therapeutic intervention which is, is generating increasing interest, partly because it's quite uh, economical to, um, uh, to operationalise, like doctors can just give, give prescriptions for particular kinds of books and people can go away and read them and there's, there's clear evidence that it can be really helpful in many cases. Um, but the, most of this research has been done with self-help books on the relevant kind of mental health condition. Um, others, a smaller amount on other kinds of non-fiction, but very little so far on what's known as creative bibliotherapy. So bibliotherapy that involves any kind of creative writing. <coughs> so fiction, poetry, drama, this kind of thing. Um, there, this is generating more and more interest, however. Um, so we do have a little bit of stuff on reading fiction and or poetry in other mental health conditions. Um, so depression, de dealing with the difficulties of HIV or AIDS, and um, in prison populations as well. There's some really interesting work on reading groups in women's prisons, which uh, seem, seems to be a very um, worthwhile intervention. Um, then in the eating disorders realm, there's less. Uh, there is a bit, I found one study recently asking, um, measuring the responses of a general population to eating disorder memoirs. They didn't really find any positive or negative effects. Um, there's a little bit of clinical work that I'm aware of that's starting to explore uh, the reading and writing of poetry uh, in eating disorder patients, in patients, I think. Um, and a very small amount of work, again, using drama therapy with kind of fairy tale formats that have um, components rel relevant to eating disorders, which again have been used with uh, current sufferers. But really, the, the surface of this area has hardly been scratched. There's a lot more to do. <coughs> um, yeah, oh yeah, periodically, like one season online every few years, I suppose a study that shows how brilliant reading is at various different things. Um, so this is just one from, I think, back in 2009 that ended up on loads of newspapers um, saying that reading could reduce your stress levels by 68%, um, whereas drinking a cup of tea could be only be 54%. Um, but I tried, I dug around a bit to try and find the original study that yielded this and it seems to be done by this weird consultancy called Mind Lab International here at Sussex. Um, yeah. Have you come across them? Yeah. Yeah, it seems really, it was commissioned by Galaxy Chocolate to, to launch some new campaign or something and no one seems to have actually been able to get their hands on the original data. From what I can gather it was a very tiny um, this company and companies like it are very good at getting their research into the media, yeah, yeah. even even if they've just been querying people as they've stepped off the plane. Yeah. You know, yeah, I don't necessarily have anything way. against them, but it would be nice if they made their data available at some point. Um, so yeah. it's clearly kind of, yeah, yeah. I've, I've emailed them once already and we'll see. Um, it's in the air, the idea that reading can be useful in the mental health context, but we need we need more evidence. Now, if, we, if we're thinking about um, fiction in particular, uh, literary studies is kind of the obvious discipline to turn to, um, but mainstream literary studies may not be your best bet. Um, so this is my, my background. It is in modern languages and 
I mean, the modern languages course at Oxford is very literature heavy, so and very anti-theory. Um, so it's basically reading texts and creating interpretations of them. Um, so the focus in, in that kind of traditional literary criticism is very much on uh, trying to ascertain the meanings that a text contains or what a text says. So this is just one example that relates to food. Within the novel, food is realised as a powerful boundary-making symbol designating meaning, and bodies, particularly female bodies, become texts displaying the traces of a history of colonial domination. This is quite standard, so everything comes down to meaning, particularly favourite um, literary critics. Um, gesture is to make everything ultimately about text, so like, it just really annoys me how bodies always just end up being about text if you ask a, a critic about it. Um, and you know this, this critic has come up with their interpretation and that's kind of um, the end point of the critical process. Whereas um, a more recent kind of variant on literary studies, generally known as cognitive literary studies, uh, is less interested in coming up with new interpretations of text and more interested in what are the mechanisms, what are the um, processes by which we get to interpretations in the first place. Um, so less on meanings, more on effects of text uh, and, and less on what texts say than what they're doing, how they're interacting with the reader, how the reader is interacting with them. Um, and this is just a little example from a recent article of mine. What we have here is a curiously flattened evocation of this embodied experience of dying. This is Kafka's hunger artist who fasts to death. And this may have important consequences for how the text is read, specifically as regards readers' automatic filling of textual gaps without even noticing they're there. Um, so here, uh, a stylistic observation is being made, and then I'm using that to um, speculate as to the potential effects on readers' engagement with the text. Um, and critically, this then um, uh, opens up the potential for empirical testing, because you're saying this kind of feature is likely to have this kind of effect on all readers or a certain subgroup of readers. Um, and, and in general, you find that cognitive literary people are much more open to um, doing experiments. Even if they don't always bother to do them themselves, they will be open to the value of empirical testing in the way that um, you can't really be if you're doing the other kind of um, literary studies because that's not really, there are, they don't seem to be really any criteria for what makes a valid interpretation or not. Right? It's just, I think this is in the text, therefore that's the end of the process. <clears throat> so you can see which side I'm on. Um, but I think, I think cognitive literary studies, for me, the trajectory has been very um, logical from thinking about just text in a, in a more traditional way to thinking about the effects of text and interactions with them to then, in general, reader populations, and then thinking, okay, what might be the, the differential effects within a specific population, subpopulation of readers? <clears throat> in this case, people with mental health problems. <clears throat> so this is where um, the project with B comes in. Um, and the idea of the project, which was just one of these, um, I never really heard of knowledge exchange until about a year ago, um, but the idea of a knowledge exchange partnership is that it, um, it links an academic and a non-academic organisation. Um, and it's just been six months of money to, uh, to set up a partnership, in this case with BEAT. Uh, and the, the long-term aims of the project, as Karen mentioned in her introduction, are firstly on the clinical side to see what effects reading fiction may have on uh, mental health outcomes, and also on the literary side then to see what kinds of effects do differences between readers have on the processes of reading and interpreting fiction. And more immediately, one of the, um, the short-term goals that uh, Beta are really keen on is um, they have a helpline whose staff who uh, 
often get questions um, from from users as to what kind of um, whether there are any uh, any books that might be helpful for them. They have a section on the website that reviews non-fictional books, so mostly self-help style books. Um, but they're recently they recently started to branch out into reviewing um, eating disorder memoirs and a couple of fiction titles. But they're really unsure about you know what criteria should you use for reviewing such books? How can you? Um, they don't want to re make recommendations, but how can you? What what should be the guidelines in general for assessing the potential helpfulness or harmfulness of, of books like this? So that's something that um, the project was intended to to feed into more directly. <coughs> so six months is such a short time to do anything. Basically, we had lots of other ambitious ideas, but the main thing that we've managed to do is um, uh, design and run uh, an online survey, which asks people. First, some general questions about uh, what they read, how much they read, and then um, connects these questions about reading with questions about mental health. So it asks people whether they perceive any connections between what they read and their mental health on various different dimensions. This is just one example from the questions about mood. Um, and we've been really delighted with the response. I didn't expect to get nearly this many people. Um, we had a few different versions with different um, information about support that was available in different countries, but the UK version is the one that's had by far the most respondents. So, and we only chose it yesterday, so <laughs> all the analysis that I've done so far is, is very hasty, and I hope you'll forgive me if there are uh, imperfections in it. Um, but I'll just concentrate on the UK version for now and on the, on the 575 completed cases. I'm really not sure whether to include the other 300-odd that didn't finish the survey. I think they vary hugely in how far they got through the survey, and I'm going to have to have to look at that a bit a bit more closely. Um, so a wide range of ages, but very much skewed towards the lower end, as you might expect. Um, hugely skewed towards female population, which I guess I expected, but not quite that extreme. It's a bit of a shame that we haven't got more men. Um, and 86% have a personal experience of an eating disorder. Uh, with 45% of the others having had someone in their family with an eating disorder, um, then people could tick as many boxes as they wanted for which uh, disorder they had to suffer from. So um, you can see the breakdown there. So quite a lot of people have clearly ticked um, several boxes, uh, or at least two or more, which I guess feeds into this ongoing debate about whether the diagnostic criteria that separate them out categorically are very meaningful. Um, and in terms of their current status, 29% describe themselves as currently suffering, 42% as being in recovery. I also included a, a box for, I started recovery, but this stalled before I became fully healthy, um, and 14% thought that best represented where they were, whereas 15% said that they um, are fully recovered. Um, I've been, as I say, delighted by the just the sheer number of people that have taking the time to respond to the survey, which I think in itself is, is evidence that this, this matters to people, but also really um, really surprised and quite moved by how much time people have taken to, um, to give further details in the sort of free response sections um, on the issues that we've been asking about. There's been really, I mean, I've got like 300 pages of just people writing stuff, and it's, um, it's fascinating and, and, as I say, quite, uh, quite moving to, to look at. So I just wanted to give you a couple of examples on, on both sides, the negative and the positive. Um, this person talks about reading general fiction makes her feel fat. My lowest weight wasn't low enough. I feel like I've magically gained weight since I started reading, so say in the last hour. 
this direct potential for reading to have an effect on just one's embodied physical sense of yeah, what one's body feels like is, is quite striking, I think, and that comes up again and again, this kind of uh, a very embodied sensation as a result of the engagement with fiction. Um, and then on the more positive side, um, this person talks about how after reading The Time Traveller's Wife, I can see my body as something that can connect with another. Reading my preferred type of fiction has had a strong effect on how I feel about my body as something sexual. As I had anorexia from 11 to 22, I missed a large part of my development, and so I've learned to view my body sexually through reading fiction. And this is really quite remarkable that fiction could kind of take the place of the normal ad adolescent development and provide that, that potential to see one's body in, uh, as a potentially sexual entity. Um, if we're thinking about the kinds of books that um, people seem to think are most helpful or most harmful, got a bit of, of data on this, so unfortunately the way Survey Monkey has, I need to, part of the analysis will just be uh, improving these graphics, but um, so the first, the most um, helpful genre seems to be self-help books, uh, closely followed by biography, autobiography and memoir, then other non-fiction, then fiction about eating disorders, and then other fiction. Um, and on the harmful side, uh, again, the biography memoir category is pretty high up, or this is the highest in this category, um, and then fiction about eating disorders uh, is next on the harmful side, uh, and again, other fiction is at the bottom. <coughs> um, so if we're thinking about the, so one of the main purposes of doing this survey was just to try and get, gather some information on what would be the most promising ways forward in terms of designing experiments to to test the causal relationships here. Um, and there are some very clear um, results on both the negative and the positive side as to the kinds of things that um, people are finding harmful or helpful. Uh, with eating disorder fiction, I was really surprised to find that basically on, on all the dimensions that we ask people about, there's a dramatic um, negative effect. So in terms of general mood, um, we have almost 90% of people um, reporting a change and then almost 90% of those report that the change was a negative change. Very similar numbers um, with self-esteem, um, with how people feel about their body, uh, and in terms of changes that um, follow on from reading to their diet or exercise habits. Um, so yeah, overwhelmingly <laughs> bad press for eating disorder fiction, which is, is very interesting, because I'm sure no one writes fiction about eating disorders with the aim of, of doing anyone any harm, but clearly, as we saw earlier in the feedback loop thing, people are, I think, probably in many cases just seeking out this kind of fiction when they already feel bad. <clears throat> then with general fiction, the results are much more mixed on the other three dimensions, but in terms of general mood, there's a very clear uh, positive effect with um, nearly 80% reporting a change and then 95% of those reporting an improvement. So that really gives us some... some clear starting points in terms of um, what to investigate empirically in the next phase of the project. Then to go back to the, uh, the qualitative data, and I think, I mean, more and more trying to do experiments with fiction, um, I'm of the opinion that we need to kind of try and triangulate the qualitative and, and the quantitative kinds of um, measures. Uh, people are clearly using fiction, so these are just two examples of how people are engaging with fiction, what they're using it for. Um, if anything. And uh, in this first example, we see a clear case of uh, someone 
having a triggered response. So the reading, in this case of eating disorders fiction, um, triggers a loop of obsessive thinking and this then um, makes her more susceptible to getting, um, uh, to being in the frame of mind that uh, is conducive to taking um, advice from the fiction about everyday behaviours that will uh, facilitate doing the eating disorder better. Um, on the more positive side, uh, there's also quite a few indications that people are just using fiction as a kind of um, everyday problem-solving tool. This person says, I often relate it to my everyday experiences, and it, so fiction, helps me gain a new outlook or explanation for them. It might even help me solve mundane problems or disputes with people. I quite like this example because it goes so much against the sort of literary critical assumption that you know, the standard way of reading isn't, or the, the optimal way of reading is not task-directed. It's very kind of rarefied and intellectual and um, not about the real world at all. But I mean, many, many um, respondents um, from all the different groups within the survey um, indicate that you know, reading is just part of everyday life. It's something that they use to help them negotiate the world. Um, another point that feeds into a very live debate in, in literary studies at the moment, um, and which is also very interesting from the mental health perspective, is the idea that um, real emotional engagement can occur with characters that we know are fictional. So, particularly in philosophy um, of aesthetics, there's an assumption that this is a really profound paradox. Why would we engage emotionally with people that we know don't actually exist? For me, that doesn't really seem to be a paradox because I think we engage with all sorts of people on a spectrum of knowing that they exist right here to reading about them in newspapers to hearing our friends talk about them. And it's not necessarily um, about their kind of um, truth value or otherwise. Uh, but this is, this is um, quite a controversial point in... Yeah. Can characters vary in their degree of fictionality? Like a celebrity, for example. Mm, mm. They're half fictional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I think that, well, for me, that's an argument against the paradox. I mean, we're perfectly happy knowing that people are partially constructed. Also in biography and autobiography, that's clearly the case as well. Um, and everything we, every, all the ways in which we engage with other people involve narrative and simplification and um, the making salient of some elements and discounting of other elements. So, um, yeah, to me, the paradox is really a non-paradox, but... Uh, for these people it also clearly is. So this person says, I like being drawn into another person's world. I try to choose books about characters I identify with and it makes me feel less alone and also makes me see my own behaviours and feelings as more acceptable and less mundane because I've been able to see them that way in someone else. So see them where, that way in someone else. It's not see them that way in a weird fictional entity. It's just some other person that I have contact with. And this has a then very concrete um, positive effect on mental health, um, feeling less alone and feeling like um, my behaviours and feelings are more acceptable. Um, there's also a whole lot of interesting stuff on um, misinterpreting texts. Very simple ones that indicate that just <laughs> loads of stuff is being missed. It's just so sad that you could read The Hobbit and that just makes you want food and everything else is kind of being um, swept under the carpet. Um, and part of this over salience of food or body related um, elements is a kind of filtering um, so this person talks explicitly about how the eating disorder screens out the information about pain and suffering and focuses on the success the control and power associated with not eating um, and this can also be a deliberate um, act 
effect, this, this filtering, this um, overemphasizing of certain aspects. This person says that she was actively seeking these things out from the books she bought. I did not want to buy books about the emotional journey. I wanted books on the ins and outs of a successful eating disorder. Um, the extent to which a kind of completely distorted system of values uh, is in play here is, is made clear in this example, which is talking about eating disorders fiction, in which people die from their eating disorders. She says, I feel invalidated and often angry, especially if the subject has passed away. I feel jealous. I resent them from an abnormal period. So not only do you have this very, um, very distorted feeling of jealousy for uh, the, the person who has died, um, that feeling also persists for a long time after the reading itself is finished. So obviously it has the potential to feed into everyday behaviours and, and mood states quite profoundly. And then, I mean, it's just so clear from so many of these examples that basically, given the right or wrong state of mind, you can make a text say anything you want. So this person says, when I'm ill, I can twist the words of any book into a message to support my disorder. For me, it's not the genre as much as it's the state of mind as the reader. So that makes it pretty hard to <laughs> come up with general um, principles as to the kind of texts that are going to be helpful or harmful. But I guess... Um, some of the other responses give us indications of where we might start in this endeavour. Um, and in the last few minutes, I just want to give a bit of a, a sense of where my thoughts are at the moment in terms of the mechanisms that might be uh, operating in, in, in these engagements with texts. Uh, again, there's very little to go on in the, in the existing research. Um, Paul Montgomery, who works here in Oxford, um, has recently submitted a paper on creative bibliotherapy in um, another mental health context and he's come up with this uh, this table which suggests that um, some of the key cognitive processes involved in CBT might be parallels to those involved in reading fiction um, so if in CBT you have um, a process of identifying unhelpful cognitions challenging what they mean and then hopefully replacing them with more realistic assumptions and beliefs his thought was that uh, this might also uh, be the case in certain aspects of the reading process. So, for example, recognise in the first column, recognising yourself in a fictional character might then give you the same potential to identify unhelpful thought patterns and and then go through the process of challenging them. Um, but I think, as it is, these these categories are fairly underdetermined. I'm not entirely sure what he means by emotional memories doing the same as. Um, identifying unhelpful cognitions and I think I mean this is this is actually very closely parallel to a problem that you encounter in cognitive and true studies quite a bit that things like sympathy and identification um, and recognition uh, are the boundaries and the overlaps between them are often very far from clear so I think this is something that really needs more investigation um, in terms of the the survey data that we've got um, Again, you can't see half of the, the labels on here, but I've uh, got them here. Um, th this was just my pretty ad hoc attempt to give people some things to choose from uh, to say what kinds of um, mechanisms they, they think may be at play. Uh, so here, the, um, the, the one that got the most um, votes for uh, a mechanism contributing to helpfulness in, in engagement with text was uh, putting your eating disorder in, into perspective as something that other people have too. Um, the other high-scoring ones were letting you see your eat, eat, eating disorder through someone else's eyes, informing you about the facts of eating disorders, 
motivating you by giving you a sense of what your life could be like after recovery. So these kinds of things seem to be really important for people. Um, and on the harmful side, um, the, uh, the top one is triggering you to adjust your eating and or exercise habits in an unhealthy direction. And I'm afraid the two, the, the blue and the red one, are, I think, the only mistake that managed to creep into the survey. They're basically the same thing, but slightly differently phrased. Uh, so we'll have to kind of... Um, What's the question of triggering you to adjust? Uh, triggering you to adjust your eating and or exercise habits in an unhealthy direction is that top one. Then the red and the blue uh, big ones are uh, causing you to reflect obsessively on your eating and or exercise habits or your body weight or shape was an extra clause in that lower one. So, um, yeah, I'm going to have uh, to put those two bits together. Uh, so those seem to be the, the crucial things in terms of harmful, harmful responses. <coughs> um, finally then, um, I want to just suggest a few areas in which, with, with those kind of um, prompts from the data in mind, we might think about extending this kind of investigation, and specifically in ways that rely on quite a close dovetailing between um, literary and mental health expertise. Uh, so one thing I've been thinking about is the issue, and this is um, raised by various of the kinds of comments that people make in terms of misinterpreting texts, um, the question of narratorial unreliability. So there's a lot of work in literary studies on the different ways in which narrators can be unreliable, from having a, an obvious agenda to having gaps in their memory to um, using different kind of rhetorical <coughs> devices to persuade the reader to read in a certain direction. Um, and I wonder how that, how kind of the identification of those kinds of unreliability might be connected to the, if you like, unreliability with which you go into the reading itself. So if you have a kind of cognitive filter that's determined in part by the eating disorder pathology, how much is that affecting your ability to identify the narrator as unreliable? And how much might that then actually reflect back on your ability to identify such unreliabilities in yourself as well? Um, again, something raised by the question of uh, misinterpretation is the fact of the capacity of language to be multiply and profoundly indeterminate. So you can specify much less in language than, for example, in pictures. Um, and I think that this is one of the things that allows literary text to be marvellously ambiguous and uh, endlessly stimulating with the kind of meanings that you get coming up in literary studies all the time. Um, but it's also interesting in the, in the case of um, mental health pathologies, um, what what kinds of gaps are most susceptible to being filled in the wrong or the right way if you come into the reading with a certain um, prior attitude. Um, then there's all sorts of work in various areas of psychology on just the, and this came up a, a minute ago when we were talking about celebrity and so on, but just how profound narrative structures are in all sorts of areas of cognition. So there's lots on in memory research, for example, on how we um, how we, how memory isn't just a process of kind of mechanical reproduction, but we reconstruct memories based on uh, a self-concept which is inherently narratively structured. So I think stuff like that might feed really interestingly into thinking about the kinds of narratives that people choose to engage with um, and the ways that they engage with them dependent on their own self-narratives, if you like. Um, and then the question of kind of emotional engagement ties in closely to another really um, central topic in, in literary analysis, which is the 
potential effects of narrative perspective. So most basically the linguistic perspective from which a text is, is narrated, um, so third person or the third person, first person, um, but also then the sort of more general cognitive perspective, perceptual perspective from which the, the text is told. Um, there are very sort of basic assumptions that like a first person text is more likely to make you identify with the, with the narrating character, but there's very little actual empirical work that, that backs up these kinds of claims. And I think it'd be really interesting to investigate this in, in the mental health context um, with regard to, you know, there's, there's concrete benefits that people are taking from identification. Do they depend on particular kinds of linguistic perspective or not? <clears throat> and then this ties in with the final point, which something was raised by um, another participant in a workshop which Karen came along to last week to mark the end of the project. Um, and this is the idea that in eating disorders, Sufferers often talk about their eating disorder in, in personified terms as kind of a devil on their shoulder or as their best friend, their worst enemy, um, and various other personified forms. Um, so I wonder whether in fictional texts where you have this kind of metaphorical or allegorical personification going on, whether this might uh, again provide a useful tool for a kind of recognition of particular features of the eating disorder that might otherwise go unacknowledged. So there are just some, um, some starting points for lots of future research. Um, and so these are just a couple of other charities that I think it might be really productive to get involved with. The Read Agen Reading Agency already do a lot of work with the bo books on prescription scheme um, and are interested in um, branching out into looking more at fiction. The Reader Organisation have been supporting some of the research that's already been done with bibliotherapy, for example, the women's prison work. And of course, Beat will be um, an ongoing partner. So I will stop there. Thank you very much.